Ukraine celebrates its Independence Day. This is not a usual Independence Day. It is full of pain, destruction and death. But over 90% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine will be victorious against Russian invasion. And the more cruel the Russians are, the more Ukrainians are proud of their independence. You are listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I am Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We spend majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash Ukraine World. So let us analyze the independence. Why it is important for Ukrainians, uh, for the for the world, and what is what is the specific nature of the independence day today this year well this year is not a not a usual year because i think that a lot of ukrainians most of ukrainians have very mixed feelings today because on one hand we have this ordinary day off we should uh, we could have some festivities some concerts music some gatherings but nothing is as before now there are missiles today there were artillery fire on several ukrainian cities today um and we understand the price we are already paying for this independence uh, because this time this is a kind of uh, existential uh, existential fight against uh, russian federation after specifically after this full scale invasion 9000 uh, ukrainian soldiers are already dead during this fight um dozens of thousands of civilians also uh, economy suffering uh, um, many cities and villages are destroyed specifically specifically in the east we do know russian tactics to proceed in the east they, they with this heavy artillery fire so this uh, this day today is um, this year is, is specific because we feel the reality of what independence means for for ukrainians it means the life it's it means freedom it means uh, the capacity to live uh, to continue living to to be with your family to be with your country and um, uh, this is not abstract this is not about um this is not about um just an abstract saying depend you are independent or not this is about existential fight of the ukrainian nation indeed and uh, these are six months of the russian invasion we can really call it a, a war of independence and let us turn back in this 1991 and uh, remember something the the cons uh, the the conditions of it, the circumstances of it when ukrainians did uh, liberate themselves from the soviet union and this was a, a very interesting time at this time and uh, maybe some events that are going on right now have certain relations to to those events in 1991 and in a way this ukrainian reluctance and of course the events in the august of 1991 in moscow 
brought this situation to the fact that basically the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine declared its independence. But I would say that uh, Soviet Union continued to exist in a certain way uh, throughout the 90s. It was no longer an empire with a single center, but it was rather a feudal form of suzerain-vassal relations. When it was clear who is the boss, the Moscow is the boss, it was clear that other countries are kind of a play the subordinate role. And Ukrainians were gradually moving step by step, moving away from it, as if they were trying to feel this independence with content. And uh, just let's compare the three dictators of the late 90s, the, the Putin of early, okay. early 2000s, basically, Putin, Lukashenko and, uh, and Kuchma. Kuchma was obviously the softest out of them. Since Kuchma, we already have uh, several other presidents. This is the, fir- the fourth president after Kuchma. Putin and Lukashenko are still in power. And uh, I remember that it was under Kuchma when Ukraine basically signed into law this strategy of joining the EU and NATO. So these small steps, even from Ukrainian dictators, uh, was a symbol of the way how Ukrainians basically rather would would gradually go away from this uh, uh, from this Moscow Empire. What do you think? Yeah, and during all these years, Russia was still thinking in terms of empire, in terms of uh, uh, of their decisive role in the region, and it's quite clear because uh, Ukraine lived through already at least two revolutions. Uh, Orange. Uh, let's talk about Orange Revolution, and Putin was not happy about this revolution because w- it was a clear European choice, you know, and they were uh, already angry enough with that. But maybe the last uh, revolution, the revolution of dignity of Euromaidan times in 2013-2014 was the, the last red line for Putin. They they tried to try to to get Ukraine back by by means of diplomacy, by means of economy. We do remember all these wars, gas gas wars, when uh, Russia was trying to sell cheap gas to Ukraine, but to get uh, political, uh, politically loyal uh, government. It uh, it was not functioning for a long time in, in, in Ukraine. And, uh, and then we see that they lost all their means of pressure, and in in a way, this full scale invasion, this military invasion, is just uh, their last chance to get uh, Ukraine back. And uh, what we can say now it is that it seems they are failing this last attempt because uh, Ukraine is still independent. Yes, it is wounded. Yes, a part of territories are occupied. Mm, more than twenty percent of Ukrainian territory, territory is occupied. If you include Crimea, Donbas occupied before two thousand fourteen, and new parts in Kherson, for example, in the south, and Zaporizhia, part of Zaporizhia region, and some other places. So it means it's a huge territory which is unfortunately already occupied. By but by occupying territories, Russia is losing uh, impo- much, much more important things. It's losing Ukraine because. They started to attack when they started to attack Eastern Ukraine and people who were still, some of them were still talking Russian language and some of them still had some sympathies towards Russia. Now they are losing all these people because you cannot 
you cannot be you cannot like a country which is sending missiles tanks uh, jets and country which destroys your houses your schools civilian infrastructure infrastructure which is killing your kids or your relatives or your friends so um, russia is strategically failing in this war and this is, is quite clear and maybe um, the best conclusion of of what we are having now at, at, at the end of the six months of the of this war is that that russia has already lost the war but ukraine ukraine has not still uh, win this war. So we still have to win this war by liberating these occupied territories, by getting back Crimea. This is also important. And now we see that Ukraine uh, quite easily attacks uh, Crimea um, by missiles or by some strange explosions are taking place in Crimea. And uh, if we hear, if we listen to what uh, President Zelensky says in his, his official statements uh, he's saying that we will not stop until Crimea is Ukrainian yes this war is definitely giving even more kind of a uh, more bravery more decisiveness to the Ukrainians because I would say that the question of military recuperation of the occupied territories was a taboo since 2014 everybody was saying look we are on the diplomatic way now of course during this hot war there is a there is a very open discourse that Ukrainians will be aiming to uh, to regain these territories militarily. But uh, I would say that, look, Russians are indeed lost hearts and minds of Ukrainians. That's obvious. But did it stop them? Did it stop them in the past? We should be very realistic about that. And we should we should just understand that when Russians understand they cannot win hearts and minds, they do some different things. For example, they, they do the deportations, they do the mass killings. Do we have this in our history? Yes. Russians understood in the 30s that they cannot really 100% win hearts and minds of Ukrainians. Therefore, Stalin decided to kill some 4 or 5 million of Ukrainian peasants because he actually was afraid that uh, Poland will attack Soviet Union and will get Ukrainians as their uh, friends and allies. And this is kind of a vicious circle in history because Russia, Moscow, is always afraid of some external invasion and thinks that part of its, is the citizens of its empire, will be uh, complicit and will be kind of helping this external enemy. Like Moscow is thinking about Poles who was helping the Napoleon, Napoleon about Ukrainians who are helping the Germans, both in the First World War and the Second World War. And today as well, they're thinking this in the terms that Americans are attacking Russia and Ukrainians are just the allies of the Americans. So, uh, and we, we should look on the occupied territories and, and see these filtration camps, see these people, hundreds of people actually who are, who are missing, who are tortured. We know the, the history of the deportation of Crimean Tatars, of the demographic changes, which is also going on in Crimea right now. Uh, so we should be aware of this Russian cruelty. But let me come back to this question of independence. Uh, our listeners should also understand that this is not the first time we have independence, right? We had independence in the early 20th century. We had an effort of Ukrainian independence during the Second World War. 
we basically Ukrainians had uh, de facto independence or rather autonomy in the in the Moscovitzardom in the late 17th century and this autonomy was gradually destroyed in the 18th century by Peter the first and then Catherine second and basically our statehood of medieval times of middle ages which uh, we now call Rus but which, which was in the center of Kiev and which the name was in a way stolen by Russia uh, in some early modern times this can be also considered as proto-Ukrainian statehood. So the miracle of all this history is a kind of a capacity of Ukrainian idea to regenerate, despite the big losses, despite century of, of no statehood. What do you think? Yeah, yes, indeed, you're absolutely right. But at the same time, I think that uh, our generation, we still feel something exceptional and something decisive in, in the events even if these events are extremely tragic because they are linked to the war, is a kind of understanding that there is no way back and um, that uh, there is a chance for Ukraine to get back everything. And um, one important uh, difference, uh, if you compare what's happening now and what happened in the 20th century, is that um, a lot of countries, I mean Western countries, are on the Ukrainian side now. And this solidarity, we still feel it, it's, it's about uh, weapon supply, it's about sanctions, it's about diplomatic mm, measures, which are also important. There is a kind of understanding, and I think that Ukraine is largely support, supported here by um, by European capitals and by United States. And we feel that uh, through all these six months, this support is getting greater. It's not get, getting uh, uh, weaker. And uh, there's the difference with 2014. Remember that in 2014 there were just a couple of sanctions, but there was a kind of consensus for everybody that nobody will defend Crimea. Uh, Ukraine is uh, unable to defend Crimea, is unable to get all Donbass back. So let's let's make it, let's give it to Russia and let's, let's start from here. Now we understand that there is a kind of understanding that you cannot come the aggressor by giving him uh, a part of territory. So you are, we are to continue and if you compare rhetorics of European leaders um, in early March and now you will clearly see that there is a kind of a decisiveness about what's going on in Ukraine so they are uh, together with Ukraine and it provides us a historical chance to win this war. Let us talk a little bit about the values, the values that Ukrainians cherish, that Ukrainians have in common, and how these values are really linked to the idea of independence. And I would say that the idea of independence, this is what we see from public opinions all the time, before this 21st of February, before this full-scale invasion, after this full-scale invasion, that this idea of independence and freedom of your country from the empire is deeply linked with an idea of internal individual freedom. Uh, so this independence is not only the, the thing of a certain patriotism or nationalism, this is also a thing of a certain dignity, a certain understanding of human rights. And this link between individual freedom and the freedom, political freedom of your community, how would you describe it? 
Yes, indeed. I was also very surprised to when I, I was reading a sociological poll yesterday, uh, even this morning, about the, how Ukrainians feel now. And I was surprised to see that most of Ukrainians uh, were asked, uh, what, what is your first association with, the, the, with, the, with Ukraine? And most of them said it is freedom. Free, so to be free, to, this free country, free country. It, it doesn't mean it's only free from Russia or independent. By the way, independence, independent country comes in the second place. But in the, in the first place, people were talking about freedom, about their individual freedom and about the free country. So country where you can enjoy uh, enjoy freedom, enjoy, have your own rights, uh, human rights, certain vision of how society is organized. Uh, how relationship between people is organized, how civil society, um, relationship between civil society and government is organized. So all these kind of things where you can, you can, you're, you, you feel really free. So this is important, um, important uh, topic about freedom and Ukraine. I agree. I, I would, I would uh, draw our attention to the fact that even when Ukrainians didn't have their statehood, It was clear that, for, for example, for external observers, not for internal uh, theoreticians, the key for me is the 19th century. In the 19th century, nobody in Europe would be talking about Ukraine, right? That's the difference compared to the 18th century. Like Voltaire, when he was writing his history of Charles XII, the Swedish king, he would, he would write a lot about Ukrainian Cossacks, about the Zaporozhian Cossacks. He would consider... Uh, is Ukrainian political subject as a as a as an understandable thing that there are some people who have the autonomy who who are the warrior class maybe not a not a state in the modern sense of the term but I would rather compare it with a kind of a order the the knighty order right <laughs> like medieval knight order when. When, when there is a bunch of people who form an army, but who are not necessarily form a state. And Ukrainian statehood in the 17th century was actually called the Zaporozhian host, the Zaporozhian army, right? And, and the territories of Ukraine were actually divided into, into the military units, not into uh, administrative units. So it's, it's very interesting. But in the 19th century, I would say this topic of Ukraine for the the European intellectuals is not very present. Okay, Byron is writing his Mazeppa, then Victor Hugo writing, is writing Mazeppa, then Prosper Merime was, was fantastically enthusiastic about Ukrainian Cossacks. But was, for example, Taras Shevchenko known in, in globally in the same way as, for example, Adam Mickiewicz? Right, Adam Mickiewicz, also a representative, a, the, the poet of the stateless nation at the time of Poland, right? And but even despite this fact, the uh, the travelogues that we have, the people who would travel into Ukraine and describe it, they would they would they would repeat the same phrase that this is the territory of the people who love freedom, the the heritage of the Cossacks, and even women. I remember that there is a very interesting Austrian writer who was born in Lemberg, meaning in Lviv, Leopold von Zacher-Mazoch. We all know the, the, the connotations with, with this name. 
but uh, he was actually a very interesting writer who would write a lot about Galicia, Austrian Galicia, but also about this Eastern Europe. And he would say that, look, Ukrainian women are actually considering themselves as equal to men and that Ukrainian women have this feeling of uh, of uh, of uh, uh, of uh, freedom he would say that polish we uh, polish women are actually controlling their husbands their men russian women are fully subjugate to their men and ukrainian women are considering themselves as equal to their men yeah that's interesting and at the same time the role of women in ukrainian culture is also remarkable because if you look at our literary canon for example you'll see uh, women like lesia ukrainka like uh, olga kobylanska like olena pchilka the mother of lesia ukrainka and uh, quite a number of these remarkable women who form these um, national uh, identities so and uh, who were recognized as, as as such. So this is important. So this uh, equality is important and this uh, this feeling of freedom is important. Uh, freedom of women and men and freedom is free land. So and this miss this means this image of um, Ukraine as a free country is still uh, very important and I think that it motivates Ukrainians much more than any other things to continue this war because this is not only about the dependence or independence from Russia, it's also about this inner freedom to choose uh, where countries should go, for example, to Europe, what kind of geopolitical choices to to be made and what kind of uh, economy system. Uh, I think this motivates Ukrainian today. So it's not only about some nationalism or patriotism or a willingness to get to, to, to get your state, which is a normal wish of a certain community of people. It is also a question of certain universal values, right? And this is like we, were, we are calling it freedom. But this is a, a very interesting thing because um, I think that's make kind of a difference of Ukraine to, to some other parts of the world because... I remember when we were discussing the Ukrainian values like before this war and were analyzing many, many of Ukrainian intellectuals were analyzing this map, value map of the World Value Survey of uh, Inglehart and other scholars. And uh, there was this kind of a contradiction between the individual values and the values of the community. Like the, the progressive societies cherish more individual freedoms and the more traditionally societies cherish more kind of a traditional community-focused values. And I, I was always thinking that there's something wrong with this opposition. And uh, now, look, Ukrainians identify their individual freedom with the freedom of the state, but at the same time, the freedom of the state with their individual freedom, meaning that they cannot think themselves without their community, but they also cannot think their community without the individual freedoms of, of the citizens. And this is something very peculiar, uh, that, that there is no big contradiction between your feeling as an individual and your feeling as a, as a part of the community, of this communitarism, let's, let's call it in this way. And at the same time, another thing which surprised me uh, today is that in the same sociological poll, we can read now that um, people were asked about their feelings and how do we feel now today 
uh, if you're asked if you, you asked if you're told that you're Ukrainian what's the, the most fundamental feeling and people were saying that they were proud uh, 75% of Ukrainians said that they were proud to be Ukrainians and I think that this was not the case one year ago uh, even even seven months ago so this it, it means that they are not proud to to conquer territories to to aggress another country like Russia does they're not they're not proud to get more to be to, to become a great country they are proud to resist to be to be brave enough to be courageous enough to resist this uh, second old army and to be free and this is something new i would say i wouldn't, wouldn't say that ukrainians it's a common feeling for ukrainians to be proud Uh, from during decades, Ukrainians were considered to be had this complex of inferiority. So this complex that we are a small country, we are a small nation, we are not very well known abroad. Nobody speaks uh, a Ukrainian. Nobody knows our writers, our artists. So we had to reconquer this a lot. By the way, this is a whole process of reconquering this Ukrainian um, cultural history because a lot of uh, a lot of personalities were appropriated by Russia. Russia. Uh, so I would not say that Ukrainians were very much proud during these 30 years. And this is a, maybe a good thing to understand that now Ukrainians, they do feel proud, proud of, of the army, first of all, for sure, of territorial defense, of the volunteer networks, of the capacity uh, of the country, of the people to, to stand and to resist. There is one more thing in this uh, values thing, which which is very interesting to me, is that, yes, we can talk about uh, freedom, of course, but there are two other values which are very important for the modern modern world. And I, I always refer to the La Révolution Française, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, the Liberty, Equality and Brotherhood or Fraternity. And uh, I would say that this the third value of fraternity was kind of a seen with suspicion by the Western societies after the Second World War, uh, thinking that everything which relates to fraternity, to this brotherhood, sisterhood, or whatever, it actually has these overt- overtones of uh, a nationalism, of this kind of a cherishing the community be- uh, over the individual and everything in this kind kind of a risks leading to fascism and Nazism. And we understand because, I mean, fascism and Nazism were saying that, look, the first, the first and foremost, you are brothers with, with each other and you are, you are nobody without the other, without your community, you are, you are zero. Uh, I think that there is a certain way to rethink fraternity, right? Especially in our highly individualistic societies. And Ukrainians are now rediscovering this fraternity because if if we're describing the 90s and the 2000s, I would say that this is a huge way from this collectivism, Soviet collectivism, to the extreme individualism, extreme atomization of the community. It's interesting how this extreme collectivization led so quickly to the extreme atomization of the community. And... Uh, through the Orange Revolution, through the Revolution of Dignity, through the war, Ukrainians are kind of rediscovering this spirit of, of fraternity. But then also this equality thing, because, uh, well, of course, Ukrainian society is far from being equal. The socialist ideas are discredited. No socialist parties, no 
remarkable leftist movement in the past decades. Therefore, Ukrainian economy is a kind of a wild capitalism uh, with uh, with uh, with the certain elements of uh, of corruption, but then of creativity, but then of something else, but which is not matched by which is only matched by the remnants of this uh, Soviet Union. Uh, but which doesn't give any kind of a modern welfare welfare state uh, things to develop. And then the war creates this feeling of equality, the extreme equality, when high managers go to the front line and become soldiers, or as rock stars also become soldiers, or, or comedians become... Uh, fantastic volunteers as Spritula or some others. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. I think you are absolutely right thinking about this brotherhood, first of all. This is about the, this is about uh, your neighbor. This is about your people you know. This is about your community. Um, uh, we are talking a lot about the trust in Ukrainian society. A lot of things and what we experience every day. It's a lot, of, a lot of trust here. You know, during the war, you can, for example, if you organize uh, procedures, if you organize, I don't know, uh, any kind of volunteer initiatives, you you have to trust people with whom you are engaged in such or such project. And I would say that there is a lot of trust now. And this is not official, this is not about the relationship between people and institutions. This is about relationship between people. Sometimes you have to contact people you don't know, you see for the first time, you give them money, and then, for example, this uh, these people have to bring you some, for example, equipment for the front line, and you just you just trust them. You give them money, and they bring it. So we experienced that several times ourselves, and we understand that there is a kind of uh, understanding, um, trust between people who are under attack, um, trust between people who are under this danger, uh, in f- facing enemies. So uh, this brotherhood is uh, is based, I think, on this feeling of trust and equality as well. So. We are all Ukrainians. We cannot leave our country. We we are still here uh, and we have to fight together. The last thing I wanted to discuss is why this Ukrainian independence is so... Uh, so perceived by the Russians as something absolutely unacceptable. And uh, there is, I think there is something psychological in it, not only geopolitical, because does Russia really need Ukraine geopolitically? Well, it, it, it would be much more successful if, if it didn't launch this war. It was already engaging itself in the global economy, becoming one of the key players in the global economy. And it seems that, well... The global economy, no, actually global geopolitics, because it seems that Russia tries to uh, create instability in the world, instability in the world, and they say, "Look, I'm indispensable to talk to talk to." Uh, therefore, they they were engaged in Syria. Therefore, they 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 create problems in in the so-called near abroad, Russia near abroad. But I think there is something very deep uh, in the way how they perceive Ukraine. And when I was talking recently to a French journalist, I was saying, look, we can compare what is going on with the French-Algerian war, uh, because Al- Algeria was so important for France. 
uh, it was not just a colony, but uh, there is some something deeper in it because yeah, Algeria, Algeria, Algeria was perceived by the France imperial colonial powers as an intrinsic body uh, of the French political, uh, intrinsic part of the French political body. But for Russia, Ukraine is something different. Russia is uh, for for Russians, Ukraine is their head and their heart. Their heart. Yeah. So, so and therefore they are they are. They really invented this mythology that their statehood actually runs from the Middle Times, Middle Ages. And if you go to the Middle Ages, that means your statehood runs from Kyiv. Mm -hmm. And they cannot really imagine their history without, without Ukraine. Then in the 19th century, Kyiv was a place of uh, Orthodox pilgrimage. It was kind of a Mecca for the Orthodox world. And uh, there is something this psychological that they really fear that if they lose the Ukraine, they will lose Russia itself. And what will, uh, let's add, what will uh, quite probably happen in the coming years, because, yes, Putin indeed, and we do know his interest for the history. He has his own vision of the history, and he reads a lot. He At least he reads a lot. And we, we think that, uh, we understand that for them, Ukraine is a, is a very beginning of of this story with Rus, with Russia, and this is the heart of this civilization. And they understand that without Ukraine, without this beginning, they they are losing. They Because they think in terms of mm, not social construction, but uh, but this historical organic link to, to, to the history. That is why exactly they need Kiev. They not, don't need only Donetsk, Lugansk, or Crimea. They need, that's why they attacked Kiev in the first phase of this war. And um, they feel wounded without Ukraine. There will be no empire without Ukraine. And the, the, the reality is that they... Mm, we understand now that they are already losing this battle for Kiev, and the consequence of that will that will be mm, a very serious wound to Russia itself. There is one very interesting thing: uh, the internal contradiction. Because I think the the most interesting things are actually when you when you find some very uh, important internal contradiction, and you understand that everything is just uh, just around it. So. Russians, Russian intellectual history was actually from the early 19th century onwards until today was essentially anti-European. Let's just let's just say it very clearly, because when you read Pushkin to the slanderers of Russia, when you read Dostoevsky's uh, uh, journal, the journal of the writer, when you read uh, the so-called uh, Silver Age, Russian poets of the Silver Age. Uh, of course, the, then the Bolsheviks, and then you have the current so-called philosophers. They are all anti-European. So, and and then they constructed this Eurasianism, which is kind of a, a form of of Russian fascism, right? So, uh, it, it was born. This Eurasianism was born in the in the 1920s. Then it regained its strength with, with Dugin and some other people today. And this Eurasianism pretends that Russia is a separate civilization, which is opposed to the West. But at the same time, they're they're not really talking to to other to to, to these Asian societies. Their they, their major interlocutor is is precisely the West. They they are unable to talk really to to China or to Iran. They understand that they were born from the from the European culture. 
come on, Pushkin did not spoke, speak Chinese, and Tolstoy did not write a quarter of his War and Peace in, in, in Persian, right? He, he wrote in, in French. And Pushkin is a, is a kind of a Russian version of the French of Rococo literature, in, in, in a way. So they, they are, they're, they're telling Europe, look, we are not European, we are Eurasian. But rather to themselves, they are telling, look, we are the Asian version of Europe. That's, that's what Russia really wants to be, the Asian version of Europe. And they are afraid of losing Ukraine because Ukraine is something that, you know, anchors them to Europe. If they lose Ukraine, they will, they will not be the Asian version of Europe. They will be a European version of Asia. And they don't want to do that because they, under, they don't understand Asia. They just don't understand the Asia, the, 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 all this cultural content, all their senses, all their words. So this is the nature of this Russian attitude to Europe and uh, its kind of fantasy of the Eurasia, which is, as I try to say, the kind of a contradiction inside, as Russians want to rather be Asia for Europe. Uh, and uh, they, they just cannot imagine themselves with this very important European part of themselves, which is, which is Ukraine. What do you think? Yes, indeed. So, um, but the, on the other hand, we see that there is a kind of a European part in in Russia. If you look at Moscow, Saint Petersburg, but they still they are they are linked to Ukraine, and uh, for them, Ukraine is a kind of the heart of this civilization. What I find extremely absurd about Russian idea of uh, of their own culture is their way to present Russian culture like a Russian civilization. Seriously, they are talking about the existence of the Russian civilization, which is a completely false idea, uh, as if there would be an alternative way for, for a civilization. It's ridiculous if you consider that there is around one, 150 million people in Russia and they pretend to have a kind of separate civilization. And we do understand that in most of historical moments when Russia was capable to, to, to show a kind of progress, they were closer to Europe. And in other periods when they were keeping their distances with Western world, with Europe, they, they were moving towards a kind of a more barbaric, more cruel, uh, uneducated uh, periods. So this is our attempt to analyze the Ukrainian independence, both from the Ukrainian point of view, but also from the point of view of, of our enemy, which tries to, uh, to kill this independence, to destroy it. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolnk, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is Ukrainian scholar and journalist and in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend the majority of your support to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Also follow us on social networks. Like what you do, share with your colleagues and friends to learn more about Ukraine. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.